morning, Africa, and welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington. Today is Thursday, June the 30th, and here are some of the stories we're covering for you this morning. A United Nations Special Rapporteur on Burundi's human rights situation is appealing to authorities to grant him access to their country. I would like to request of the Burundi authorities the possibility of interacting with them, visiting this brotherly country in order to better understand the realities on the ground, the country's opportunities, as well as the challenges and priorities of that country. That is the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Burundi's Human Rights, Fortune Gaetan Zongo. And Ethiopia's ruling party said this week that it wants the African Union to mediate any peace talks to end the war with Tigran forces. But the TPLF has said that it does not trust the African Union and instead wants Kenya to mediate. The position of Tigray's government seems to be based around um, a concern from the outset of the conflict uh, that the African Union Commission chairperson expressed um, some support um, for the Ethiopian federal military campaign in Tigray. William Davidson is an analyst with the International Crisis Group Senegal's opposition coalition has called for a parts and pens protest against the court decision to ban some opposition candidates from next month's parliamentary elections. We'll have those stories and more coming up right here on Daybreak Africa. Stay tuned. And for our top story, a United Nations special rapporteur on Burundi's human rights situation is appealing to authorities to grant him access to the country. The UN official says access is needed for him to properly discharge his mandate to investigate alleged violations in that country. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. This is Fortune Gaetan Zongo's first oral report since beginning his job April 1st. He is treading gingerly so as not to upset a relationship that has barely begun. He noted with satisfaction that since the start of his mandate, Burundi's return to the international scene had begun with the lifting of sanctions by the European Union, the United States, and others. In return, he said Burundi has begun interacting with international and regional actors. Additionally, he said Burundi has made progress on human rights. He noted that Burundian President Evariste Indaishime has pardoned more than 5,000 people in detention and freed some journalists and civil society representatives as well. He spoke through an interpreter. But despite this major progress achieved since 2020, additional efforts are still necessary in the area of fighting impunity, in beefing up institutions, notably in the justice sector, the police and the army, in protecting the enjoyment of public freedoms and expanding the democratic space through effective participation of civil society and the media. Zongo said he intends to fulfill his mandate in an impartial manner and will examine documents from all sources regarding the human rights situation in Burundi. However, he noted he only has access to partial information achieved through secondary sources that, he says, could tarnish the credibility and neutrality of his effort. He spoke through an interpreter. 
From the height of this tribune, I would like to request of the Burundi authorities the possibility of interacting with them, visiting this brotherly country in order to better understand the realities on the ground, the country's opportunities, as well as the challenges and priorities of that country. Burundi's ambassador to the United Nations in Geneva, Renova Tabu, said Burundi has achieved major progress in implementing reforms and promoting good governance, social justice and freedom of expression. He said his country was aware of the crucial role played by the council in reinforcing, promoting and protecting human rights across the world. But he added that Burundi would not accept any mechanism or political attempts to interfere with the domestic affairs of sovereign states. The comments effectively shut the door on Zongo visiting Burundi, at least for the time being. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. And let's go to the Horn of Africa in Ethiopia, where the country's ruling party said this week that it wants the African Union to mediate any peace talks to end the war with the Tigran forces. But the Tigray People's Liberation Front, or TPLF, says that it does not trust the AU and instead wants Kenya to mediate. Henry Wilkins speaks to analysts and politicians about the standoff and prospects for talks in this report from Addis Ababa. The comments by Ethiopian Justice Minister Gedeon Timotheos came on Tuesday once again, making clear the government's desire for the African Union, partnering with the United States, to mediate peace negotiations with the Tigray People's Liberation Front. The TPLF, however, has said it does not trust the AU and would favour Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta playing the role. So, why are the two sides opposed even at this early stage in negotiations, and how does it bode for future talks? William Davidson is an analyst with the International Crisis Group, a Belgium-based research organisation. The position of Tigray's government seems to be based around um, a concern from the outset of the conflict uh, that the African Union Commission chairperson expressed um, some support um, for the Ethiopian federal military campaign in Tigray. I don't think that the federal government feels that the African Union has much sort of coercive power at its disposal um, and therefore it's a mediator that it's better able to handle. The AU headquarters is also located in Addis Ababa. Solomon Gawadi, a lecturer in law at Jijiga University in Ethiopia, says he suspects Kenya would not be a neutral party in negotiations. Because Kenya has uh, certain border and environmental issues with regard to Ethiopia, maybe it may involve into any partiality or any sort of factors that will lead uh, Kenya uh, into uh, neutral, right? So I think the African uh, Union is a better place, right, than Kenya. Davison goes on to say that these kinds of disagreements are normal and can be overcome. So no particular reason why the Kenyan government can't work alongside um, the African Union and its envoy as a sort of compromise solution. And, and that's certainly what's necessary because um, given what's at stake here, it's vitally important that these sorts of procedural wrangling don't distract um, from the parties getting down to substantive talks. Complicating the negotiations is the fact some analysts and politicians have said peace talks should involve actors in the conflict apart from the TPLF and the government, in particular the Ethiopian regional governments of Amhara and Afar and the national government of Eritrea. Eritrean troops joined the Ethiopian government in fighting against the TPLF in the north of Ethiopia, bringing to an end a decades-long standoff between the two nations. 
The war between Tigrayan forces and Ethiopia's federal government has raged since November 2020. An estimated 5.1 million people were displaced by the conflict in 2021. Ghent University in Belgium says up to half a million people have died so far because of the conflict, either in fighting or because of the humanitarian crisis it has caused. Henry Wilkins for VOA News, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. VOA's Daybreak Africa continues. Senegal's opposition coalition is calling for a parts and pans protest this Thursday against a court decision to ban some opposition candidates from next month's parliamentary elections. And this after the government suspended protests, alleging that the demonstrations could be infiltrated by troublemakers. Nafisa Dia is a member of the main opposition leader Osman Sonko's African Patriots for Senegal for Work Ethics and Fraternity Party, PASTEF. She tells VOS James Barty that the opposition cancelled Wednesday's protest not because of a government ban, but out of concern for ordinary citizens who are about to celebrate a big religious holiday. She says that for 30 minutes starting at 8.30 p.m. Thursday, Senegalese will bang their pots and pans from their balconies or honk the horns of their cars to send a message to the government that they are not happy with the way the country is being run. When one fights for a people, one should not harm the people themselves in the process of fighting for them. All the more, when the, those same people, they ask you to postpone because it is in an exam period. Children are having their exams and uh, who are starting you know, to cancel classes, to cancel exams. And also it is the preparation of the Tabaski, that is the biggest Muslim feast in all Muslim countries. And also this time is the best time for tailors, hairdressers, etc. And all those people and others were worried and, you know, they were just starting to cancel all their activities. So you had a social impact, economic impact, etc. And in a normal democracy, you know, this protest could have gone ahead without any problem at all. But we knew, we guessed what would happen. They would just come again, repression, kill people, and that is not what we want for the people. So you canceled the protest voluntarily and not the government banning you? Yes, we postponed it because the circumstances are not in favor of the protest taking place. And the people of Senegal for whom we are fighting asked us to postpone it, but most of all, the main reason is that, anyway, we feel that we have reached our objective. And our objective is to make the government know that, you know, the people is not happy. And the second objective was at the international level. So you will be having this pots and pans protest. What exactly is it and uh, what do you think uh, will be the impact as opposed to having a public demonstration? Our objective is not to, to see people being injured, killed, jailed, or just stressed. No. Our objective is to send a message to the government. This is a sort of referendum to show to the president that we disagree with the way you govern our country. The constitution gave us the right. The government says that um, it banned your protest because it feared that uh, you are being infiltrated by troublemakers. Are you being infiltrated? No, not at all. The fact of saying that there are some terrorists who are trying to infect is false. I'm interested in the pots and pans protests. How does it work? It will happen this Thursday, July 30th, from 8.30 p.m. 
because we, we cannot do it too late. We would be against the law. And what is asked for is for people, even from their balcony, from their door, or wherever they might be, just to take posts and fans and, you know, bang them together. If you're in your car, you can horn. That's it. Just for 30 minutes, it makes noise. And it's a message. People don't need to gather. They don't need to leave their house. They don't need to leave their streets, etc. They don't need to leave their city, etc. You can do it from where you are. That's it. Nafisa Dia is a member of Osumani Sonko's Pastef Party. She was speaking from Moncton, Canada with VOA's James Barty. You're listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. South Africa's state-owned power company, ESCOM, said that some workers were returning to their posts amid a brief wildcat strike over pay issues that caused severe nationwide power cuts. The rolling blackouts have dealt a blow to South Africa's already ailing economy. Vicky Stark reports from Cape Town in South Africa. Some of the striking workers, who are members of the National Union of Mine Workers, NUM, and the National Union of Metal Workers of South Africa, NUMSA, have heeded the call to return. But the exact number of those who have resumed duties is still unclear, as the workers walked off the job without approval. ESCOM spokesperson Sikonati Manchancha says while some are back at work, there is still a high level of absenteeism. He explained that despite the workers returning, the country remained on what is known as stage six alert regarding the outages. The system will still take some time to recover. As a result of the strike, maintenance work has had to be postponed and this backlog will take time to clear. Stage six, also known as load shedding, means many areas are without electricity for at least six hours a day on a rolling basis. ESCOM resorted to that stage only once before for three days in December 2019. The alert level is expected to go down in the coming hours. Regular power cuts started in South Africa back in 2007 due to increased demand and aging coal power stations. Energy analyst Chris Yellen says the strike, which started last week, simply aggravated an already bad situation. ESCOM says that um, you know, there were a number of units that had come off even before the uh, industrial action, but because of the industrial action, key people were not able to get access to the power stations as a result of picketing at the power stations, intimidation, acts of violence. And so uh, the people that needed to bring these units back on stream were not available. Workers from the two unions went on strike to demand pay increases of 10 and 12 percent respectively. Union leaders will meet with ESCOM on Friday to discuss the company's latest offer, reported to be a 7 percent raise. Meanwhile, Yelland is calling on the government to get rid of the regulations that give ESCOM a near monopoly over South Africa's electricity market. And every effort has to be made to remove all the restrictions that are preventing the private sector from building their own generation capacity. And that means domestic, commercial, industrial, mining, um, agricultural, have all got to come to the table and be allowed to build their own generation facilities. Economists, meanwhile, have warned of a ratings downgrade 
if the situation doesn't change fast. Vicky Stark for VOA News, Cape Town, South Africa. Malnutrition levels among children under five in Somalia is worsening as the country faces potential famine. An aid worker in southwest state, the region most hit by drought, told VOA's Somali service that there is an increase in the number of acutely malnourished children arriving at the stabilization centers in Baidoa. In March of this year, 190 children were admitted at their center and 193 in April. But that figure jumped to 324 in May and nearly 500 in June. Mohamed Nu Abderrahman is the deputy area representative of the Save the Children Somalia office. He tells VOA's Harun Maruf that Somalia is, quote, very close to famine if humanitarian response is not put in place. The country is now experiencing one of the worst droughts ever in 40 years due to four consecutive seasonal failures, with the fifth season is expected to fail as well within this year. And this has caused it to increase number of displacements coming to, uh, to, to main cities of Somalia, including Baidoa. And uh, this growth has also led uh, the increase of malnutrition of children. So you mentioned the malnutrition of children. Tell me about that and uh, the extent of the malnutrition. As of now, close to 400,000 children are severely malnourished. And, uh, and approximately 1.5 million children under five years are expected to be malnourished uh, from June up to September if humanitarian responses are not put in place. And tell me about the hospital you run uh, in Baidawa area and the children who are coming to these hospitals with malnutrition. Uh, thank you. Save the children uh, together with the Ministry of Health, Southwest State are now running a stabilization center where malnourished children are treated. Uh, in that in that facility, uh, the number of uh, malnourished children uh, that are admitted to the hospital are increasing uh, day after day. Uh, for the last three months, the, uh, the malnutrition trend was very significantly increasing. Uh, as of today, uh, within this month of June, the number of children uh, admitted to the stabilization center is very close to 500. Uh, when compared to the same month in last year, where the number of children admitted was uh, 138 in June 2021. And this shows there is a significant increase of malnourished children within Baidawa IDPs and with the country at all. And what does this uh, malnutrition and morbidity trend show? This admission trend or this uh, malnutrition morbidity trend shows uh, a very a very terrifying situation. Uh, you know, uh, 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 if I compare. Uh, for the last four months, for example, in March it was 190 uh, children were admitted in our stabilization center. In April, the number of children admitted was uh, uh, 193, and it has jumped for, uh, in April from 193 to uh, 324 in May, and then in June it is very close. Uh, as of today, 29th of uh, of June, the number of uh, of children admitted to the stabilization center is very close to 500. And where are these children coming from? Are they coming from the urban areas or from the countryside? Uh, 
most of the children uh, coming from uh, the IDPs and as well as the, rur the, the rural community where the drought uh, extremely hit the West area because of uh, most majority uh, of the communities living in in this livelihood zone by and because they are more dependent on uh, their livelihood are more dependent on 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 agriculture and the livestock and due to four consecutive seasonal failures people do not have enough food to to, uh, to feed their children so that's why the number of, of malnutrition cases uh, become significantly high and Tell me about the fears about famine. Is famine already there? How close are we to famine? We are very close to famine. You know, uh, currently 38,000 people are in the IPC5, which we call it a famine situation. And if humanitarian response is not put in place, the number of people who are at a famine level Farming condition will be will reach up to 213,000 people uh, between June to September. That was Mohamed Noor Abderrahman, Deputy Area Representative of the organization Save the Children in Somalia. The United Nations International Agency's Emergency Fund, UNICEF, warns that the young girls in Africa are forced into early marriages and face genital mutilation at an alarming rate. The number of children at risk of dropping out of school across Ethiopia, Kenya and Somalia due to severe drought has tripled within three months. Moreno Jambo reports. Child marriage has doubled in the last year in East Africa as many families are marrying off their girls due to severe drought and female genital mutilation or FGM, which is required by many cultures for marriage. According to UNICEF analysis, adolescent girls are in danger of several child protection risks, including undergoing FGM and being forced into marriage. UNICEF Deputy Regional Director for Eastern and Southern Africa, Rania Dagash, says families are facing desperate choices to survive as drought driven by climate change and increased food and fuel prices hit hard. The drought crisis in the Horn of Africa is impacting children beyond nutrition and water scarcity. Women and girls in affected areas are having to walk longer distances to access water and other basic needs, leaving them vulnerable to sexual violence. We know child marriages is on the rise and girls as young as 12 are being forced into early marriage and female genital mutilation at alarming rates. In the worst affected places in Ethiopia, child marriage has more than doubled in the space of one year. According to the Famine Early Warning Network, more than 1.8 million children are in desperate need of treatment for life-threatening severe acute malnutrition in the region. In Kenya, girls from 14 counties affected by drought are in danger of undergoing FGM at younger ages as families prepare them for marriage. Dagash says UNICEF lacks funds to address the situation. Economic downfall and skyrocketing food prices push more parents to marry off girls to secure dowries and help support the rest of the family. They see it as one less mouth to feed or a desperate attempt to help the bride to have a better life. Services to address child protection and gender-based violence need to be urgently scaled up, including investment in mobile teams to reach the most vulnerable. 
UNICEF knows what to do and how to support women and girls at risk, but we cannot do it alone. We urgently need funds so that we can try to reach every child with the help they need. UNICEF says the number of children are at risk of dropping out of school in Ethiopia, Kenya and Somalia due to impact of drought has tripled in just three months from 1.1 million to an estimate of 3.3 million children. Across Africa, four rainy seasons have failed for the last two years, with forecasts suggesting fifth rainy season from October to December is also likely to fail. Reporting for VOS Daybreak Africa, I am Maureen Ojiambo in Sacramento, California. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending this morning with us. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Twitter, Instagram. We are also on YouTube where you can watch our videos and our TV shows. Until next time, I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington wishing you a great week ahead, Africa.